It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, it's one o'clock Pacific Standard Time, so that means we are here to have a conversation with two awesome people and today is no exception we have two fantastic uh talent leaders that uh, certainly uh, consistently have an opinion about what's going on in the world of talent and staffing uh recruitment and uh, really excited to have them on the show and to pick their brain and to find out uh, what they're thinking about so you know the show really centers around stories about understanding what uh, our talented leaders and people are doing um, on a day-to-day basis, what they're thinking about, what they're reading, what they're doing. And we've had so many wonderful stories that um, a lot of those went into my first book, The Power of Company Culture. I uh, was really fortunate for it to be a bestseller, and I'd love to have you check it out. So you can get that wherever you find your books online. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before, we are live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Most of you, though, catch us after the live show. So we certainly have a nice little group of you that are listening right now and are involved with our, our live tweeting. Um, but a lot of you do come in afterwards and listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher or iHeartRadio, wherever you find your, your podcast. So thank you so much, whether you're listening live or a little bit later on the podcast. And uh, as I sort of foreshadowed, we do uh, live tweet this. So Angela, my social media guru and also the uh, scheduler for the show, she uh, will listen for the best things that we said, ignore anything stupid that we said, and post those lines and best comments, links to bios, to books, anything else that may be of interest to you right on Twitter. So if you follow at PeopleG2, you can follow along. You can also follow the hashtag Talent Talk, and that will help you get all the information. So maybe if you're driving, maybe you're on the treadmill when you're listening to a best-selling author, uh, all-around good guy. We'll get to him in just a second. And after the commercial break, we'll bring in my second guest, uh, Tara, not the HR lady, uh, Tara, uh, and we'll talk to her uh, after the commercial break. But let's go ahead and bring Paul into the show. Paul Estes, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, how are you doing today? And, and you know, what's maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a framing of what should we know about you? What's important about your background and what you're doing right now that will help us for this conversation? Well, how I'm doing today, we're on the Pacific. I'm in Seattle. And so we've been not only locked in by the pandemic, but we now have uh, the house enveloped in smoke. And so (laughs) today is a a unique day. Hopefully by the end of the week, we'll be in good shape. Uh, You know, I spent 20 years in in big tech. I spent time at Dell, uh, Amazon, and and Microsoft. And so in a lot of ways, I consider myself a corporate refugee. You know, I I found this moment that we'll talk about um, when we talk about the book, Big Mindset, where I started working 
with on-demand freelancers. And it fundamentally changed, as, as many experiences do, not only the way that I live, because I think a lot of us engage with the gig economy that way, mm. um, but how I looked at the future of business and how I large organizations engaging a diverse set of talent to increase business and, and, and a lot of different things. And so it really sent me on a, a new trajectory. And so today I'm uh, the editor-in-chief of staffing.com, where we publish my top towel, where we publish a ton of content uh, to help people understand this trend. Um, and then I have the, the Talent Economy podcast, which really you know, speaks to people that are in the gig economy on the business-to-business side, uh, talent and other executives that are you know, part of this digital transformation. I mean, you know, independent labor worldwide is almost $5 trillion, and, and that is being digitally transformed at scale, and, and so that represents a lot of what the gig economy is doing. So, you know, at its core, what is the basic idea that the gig mindset embraces? I think when, when I started working with freelancers, it was so fundamentally different than the way I worked. You know, you'd say, oh, well, this is a different set of talent, right? You've got full-time employees. You might have some contractors from staffing firms. But when I started engaging with freelancers all over the United States and all over the world, I had to so fundamentally change the way I worked. It was a different mindset. You know, there was a lot of benefit to it. But I found that when I would, would go out and, and try to get a project done, I didn't know how to articulate it. Right? I didn't know how to learn how to trust experts to, to provide me those outcomes. And they were the experts. I mean, the reason I was asking them for help was, was because they had expertise that I, I didn't have or my, my team didn't have. And so it really was a fundamental change in, in how I worked. And it took me a couple of years to, to figure it out. And so thus the idea that this was a, a mindset based on the you know, rising trend of the gig economy. Yeah, and I've noticed a lot of people inside of that, uh, in the gig economy, people that are going to come in and maybe do a project and leave, you know, it's the benefit to them is they can usually make more money. They can usually set their schedules, decide what they want to work on, a lot of flexibility. The downside is they don't have consistency. They could have droughts. They could have, and if you're not, uh, I guess, in the top, whatever percentile, right, for what you do. If you're trying to do this and you're not necessarily one of the best, then you may struggle to consistently get projects. So there's that kind of ebb and flow uh, for people. But I really, despite the risks, most people that I know that do this are very successful at it, seem to be able to handle that uh, lack of consistency, right? They don't have a consistent paycheck every single, you know, two weeks or twice a month, whatever, coming in. So do you find that that's the biggest kind of push and pull? Are there other factors there that, that people tend to think about when deciding whether or not to do this? I think we're in a really interesting part of transformation. It used to be, you know, six months ago that if you work remotely, that was radical, right? I mean, companies yeah. would not hire remote. I remember when I was working at Microsoft and, and I told my boss that, hey, I, I want to start working remotely so you get more flex. And I was a radical disruptor, right? And now remote is people are figuring it out like there's and this isn't remote work this is working at home during a pandemic very yeah. different than traditional remote work and so i think we're in this really interesting time where people are starting to embrace um decentralization in the way that work is done companies are relying more and more on independent workers right and so the number of independent workers i mean it's, it's in the news google has more independent workers than it has full-time employees and so companies are starting to rely on those independent workers, the top talent that companies want, to your point, have a choice now. And so mm -hmm. there's a, a statistic that I love that says, you know, in the next five years, 
over 50% of the top people that you want do not want to work in a full-time capacity in your office. And so you, you look at a lot of these trends and you look at technology digitally trans, you know, transforming the way we work in every aspect. And you start to say, wow, is it more risky than all of the companies that are you know, laying people off and restructuring because things are changing? Is it more risky than the company that really doesn't allow you to reskill in place and then seven years later you don't have the skills to be relevant in the job force? And so, yeah. you know, I, I, I do believe that there on both sides of the fence are, are pluses and minuses. Um, but I think people have to really look for the long term of their career, you know, what is more risky? Uh, and for me, I, I looked at my career and said, hey, you know, I, there's not a time I'm going to retire at, at 60 or you know, 65 in, in technology is, you know, is, is pretty, pretty old. And I don't know a lot of 65 year old people, you know, that are retiring um, or at that, that age. And so I had to find a different path. And, and this was my path to go experiment and really start to understand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, I think it's interesting how things change, as you mentioned uh, early in your, your response there, that it was a radical idea for you to want to work from home, right, to, to work remotely. And um, what I have found is that people, I think there was maybe two parts to that. One, they didn't really understand how remote work worked because they never worked that way, right? So people don't, they don't know what they don't know. But the pandemic itself, I think, forced really, really terrible leaders to have to figure it out. Right, people who were overly reliant on I'm going to manage you by seeing you. I'm going to know that supervisors. You're doing... <laughs> they were right. called supervisors. I mean, the whole idea of having a, being a supervisor was to supervise, right? right. And so those managers, I think, to your point, that were supervisors, really struggled because they don't have anybody to supervise anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so, what are they supposed to do if their job is not watching somebody while they're, you know, doing whatever? Then what are they supposed to do as well? Uh, and, and so, yeah, if you're not developing your people, if you're not thinking about them in a different way than just making sure they're not screwing up or not screwing around, uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. And, and the other part of that I think we've talked about a few times in the show is that right now is not really remote work. Right now is, like you said, it's working from home during a pandemic, which is often multi-generational. You have people that are fighting for resources, time, space, quiet time. Uh, bandwidth, uh, you know, all sorts of issues that normally, like my people have been remote since 2009, like they are used to having just deep time to think, deep time to work, um, totally uninterrupted, you know, moments in, in their day. And that's just not happening right now, right? It's just yeah, totally yeah. disruptive. Every one of those things you said, I think, happened today. My, my, my wife also is, is now working from home, so we had bandwidth issues. I have two daughters that are homeschooled, and it's been sort of a crazy day. So it's yeah. it's, it's much different. Um, yeah, I think the the thing that the biggest pressure to your point is on managers. You know, I think in my career, I've always advised and lived like being a player coach. I never saw myself as you know someone who sat at the head of the table, and even when I had large teams, sat at the head of the table and and you know, air quotes, manage people. I had work right. that I provided where I provided value and, and I would help unblock things and, and move, um, you know, help people with their career. You told me a really interesting story because you are, you are on my podcast and I, I think it's relevant. Um, when you went remote, there was, uh, I think, two employees. One was perceived as the world's best employee and one was kind of struggling. But then when you went remote, it changed. And, I, and I've been starting to see that, like, it's mm -hmm. really different when you think of impact, when you remove a lot of the location and the, 
you know, people stealing information and saying it's theirs and stuff. Right. You remove politics and you remove and, and you actually and you democratize the work. That for us is was the difference. So we used to allow, you know, we put all of the work in a giant basket in the middle of the cubicle farm. And this is for people who were calling and verifying employment and education. And they would just go pick up a couple folders and go make some phone calls and they're done. They throw the folder the next thing. And this is all before we really, you know, autom automatized everything, you know, into a system. This was sort of pre making everything super digital. But um, when you're to your point, we went remote. We we're like, well, geez, we don't we can't have folders sitting there because they're not no one's sitting in the cubicle farm anymore. Let's just start assigning these randomly or in a very, you know, democratic way. And you're right. My best person became my worst and my worst became my best. My worst almost got fired in this process. And she tried to be our best employee because we discovered she was always working on the hardest work, which would take her the longest. Measuring her based on how many of these she was getting done per hour and the accuracy and things like that. But accuracy was difficult because it was the hardest work. You know, she was slower because it was the hardest work. And when you started giving her, you know, instead of 10 of... 10 out of 11 of them are hard. Only one out of 11 were hard. She was a top performer. So that's, yeah. it's, it's really interesting. Um, you said something really interesting that, that I think I always ask people to, to close their eyes and imagine, like if you, if you work at a large company um, or even a mid-sized company, imagine that if you took all the politics of the workout, you know, because a lot of times in freelancing, you know, one of the benefits, not only the flexibility, but the politics goes away. You're just doing the work like that. You have an SOW or you have a, project plan and it's just the work. Imagine if you worked in a place where there was no politics, it was just about the work and you reduced your meetings by 75%, mm -hmm. you know, and, and in that world, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to not only regain aspects of your life and find balance, but to be more productive, you know, to do that training that is going to make you resilient. You know, I think a lot of yep. companies go look at their employees and say, Hey, here's your job. And oh, by the way, you can do training on the side when you have time and you never have time. And it's just kind of this, this cycle. And so for, for me, the move and the gig mindset and, and that sort of work was to really reclaim my time. So I had more control as things changed so rapidly. I recently heard someone sort of frame this question around, uh, it was, it was more of a political commentary and I'm sort of taken it and I've reworked it for a work environment. And I have been asking leaders that I work with on a regular basis this question. And so I'll sort of like to get your, your thoughts on this question, but basically asking them, if I was going to, if you were going to suddenly uh, appear, right, you're going to appear as an employee of a company. You don't know if you're going to be the boss or the bottom of the barrel. You don't know if you're going to be a man or a woman. You don't know if you're going to be disabled. You don't know if you're going to be what your sexual identity is going to be. You don't know anything about your makeup, right? What, how does that company need to be set up and looked for you to be successful, right? Well, how would you want that company to operate? What would the culture to look like? Think about that world without knowing anything about who you're going to be as you magically appear on day one for that job. And that, and for me, it's a really cool way of thinking about not just how does the company need to work for me, because I can start putting all my own things in there. Well, I'm a leader. I want to have autonomy. I want to have this. I want to have that because I, I can put my own lens on there. But if I don't know who I'm going to be when I walk in day one, I might shape the organizational differently, right? And I might think about how it needs to operate for everyone, not just for a particular type of person. 
Yeah, I think there's, there's two things that, that come to mind. I wrote an article in Fast Company about location bias. And I honestly believe that this idea that location, like you have the best people at your company, as long as they live within 50 miles of your location on a planet with 7 billion people, is just, right. it's just a crazy idea. Um, and so I think there are two things if I was going, if, if that was the scenario is one, location shouldn't matter, right? It should be, mm-hmm. I should be able to show up and, and do my work. I think the, the, the second thing is, I hope, I would hope that the work is well-defined, no matter what level you are, you know, whether you're right. the janitor or the CEO, the work should be well-defined. And, and the third thing I think is important, Ray Dayo talks about this, if anybody's read Principles. Um, and he's on the, you know, the radical side of being radically transparent, but is radical transparency. You know, I think one of the, the things that I did, and it's a very tactical example, but to try to build trust with my team is I opened up my calendar to everyone so anybody could see it. And because it was, you know, if, if you wanted to check it out and see where I was going or maybe there's a meeting you wanted to attend. And so I, I've always tried to be as open and transparent with information as possible, especially right now that makes, helps people feel safe and empowered and, and allows them to help make ideas better and, and more efficient. So I think those are the three things that are extremely important. Yeah, we are big proponents of, we share our calendar with our with the team that we work with. I maybe don't share it with like everyone in the company, but I'm share, I share it with the people, my sort of immediate team who I work with on a regular basis so that they can, like to your point, know when to schedule meetings with me no, not to schedule a meeting with me where they want to come and talk about something difficult right bef- after I just had or I'm going to have a, another really difficult call or something with a client. Um, we share our, our profit and loss statements and our financials every single month. We share our, you know, our sales data and our, you know, all that stuff with our, our people. And it's amazing how much better their ideas are and how much more helpful my employees are because they know the information that I know. And they can actually show up and be and be helpful and relevant. Um, the second part that you mentioned was sort of that location bias. Proximity is important if you are working in a vineyard, right? Or you're putting a car together in a, an assembly line, right? I mean, our situations where proximity is important. But proximity in most cases has just been a crutch for not doing things correctly, not measuring correctly, not being transparent, not uh, having clear goals and expectations and everything out, right? It's just, well, we'll all show up and then we'll figure it out together. And because I don't want to have to figure that out as a leader, I'm going to be lazy and let everyone else figure that out together. We'll come and spend half the day eating donuts and drinking coffee and talking about what we're going to do instead of just going and doing it, right? And being far more effective. I, said, I, was, I was doing an interview time and somebody said, like, the worst person to pick your friends is your boss. And, and I'm not taking that away from, like, I've enjoyed colleagues that I've worked with. You know, they've been fantastic. But, you know, the idea that I want to spend time with my family and other groups of people, yet work is kind of taking that away because it, it's a commute or to your point, like all the social things that go with the politics, I, I think is starting to melt away. And I think you know, it's really interesting at this time, people are starting to reevaluate things. And people are starting to reevaluate their relationship with, you know, where they work and how they work and how they want to spend their time um, because of what's going on. It's a, it's a very acute time to, to sit down and reevaluate. Yeah. Yeah. So what got you in to be so, you know, I guess, passionate about and, and really focused on talent in the, in the gig economy and, 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 and all of these things that we're talking about? What, what sort of drives your passion there? It, it's this idea of relevancy. You know, there was, I was trying to, to keep my relevancy. You know, I've got 
kind of senior in my career. I'd done a lot of really great things, but I looked into the future and I said, how do I make sure that I keep getting skills? Uh, I wanted to help my company, right, stay competitive. And, I, and this was a trend that I thought was really important to understand. And, and the third part, you know, I was fortunate. I'm a Gen Xer, the forgotten generation. But I, like, you know, my dad gave me great advice when I was going into the workforce. He said, son, you know, go and, and get a job and, and be good to your manager. Go get a degree and stuff. And, and you know, that generally worked out, um, you know, for a period of time. But now I look at my two little girls and the world's going to look radically different. And I didn't have an answer for what, what to tell them in a number of years. And so I, the only way that I know how to get wisdom is through lived experience. And so for me, learning about, you know, the democratization of, of work and, and remote working. Remember, remote working wasn't a big deal six months ago. But all of those things, like reskilling myself pretty radically was, was important um, as I helped them navigate uh, this world. The other thing to be honest, is I started enjoying working with the diversity of the freelancers that I was, that were in my, my network that were getting things done versus a lot of the, the people that I worked with in the halls of corporate America that all looked like me. I mean, yes, they were, they were different, um, but they all came from the same socioeconomic backgrounds and, mm-hmm. and maybe they came from a different state, but I'd walk the halls and everyone, you know, kind of had this shared culture and experience and then i turn around and look at my freelance network and there's amazing stories um and things and it just was more enriching i learned more my perspective i thought was a lot broader and i that diversity i I continue to say is is not a um is something that makes work product better right it makes it makes it teaches you and makes work product better and so yeah you know i love the analogy that i I know you've used uh, when you discuss how to kind of gradually evolve uh, your way of thinking. And I think that's what you've, you started to talk about, right? You wanted, you had one way of thinking, you're sort of evolving that you're thinking about how you might, uh, you know, advise your daughters one day, right. With what they should do with their career. And that's sort of an, an evolution of thinking reminds me a little bit of that rich dad, poor dad sort of, um, you know, a connection. Um, you know, when you went from thinking of yourself as uh, of yourself as an air traffic controller, you know, you're the, conductor of the orchestra. Can, can you kind of expound on this and, and what got you there? Yeah, I remember this guy on my team. Um, his name was Ken. He was a video editor. And he was an amazing video editor. And he'd come up with this. We did a lot of training for, for the, the products. And he came up with this really innovative sort of BuzzFeed video. It was a quick, really interesting two-minute video. And it performed extremely well. Uh, and, and all these other teams, hey, I, you know, I, I like one of those for, for my product. And the challenge was that Kim was only one person. And on his best month, I think he was producing like seven of these videos because he was a perfectionist. He's very good at what he did. And we went and got him a team of freelancers. And now he was able to produce, you know, 36 of these videos. And so just seeing that exponential impact of moving from the person, the only person who could do this to, hey, I have an idea and I want it to grow exponentially by tapping into a, you know, a global pool of amazing, talented freelancers was eye-opening to me. Well, that's how you scale. I mean, I think this is the big thing that a lot of freelancers learn, either have to be okay with or they learn, is that they can only bill so many hours themselves. And so if their economic goals are satisfied inside of that, then great. If not, then they have to have a network. They have to be able to expand what they what that work looks like and maybe having to work with other people and um, yeah, it's a, it, it just, but it has to just depend on where they are on that spectrum, I guess. 
And that's the interesting thing. I've talked to a lot of people who work and build these sort of networks of freelancers that they work with. That becomes their resiliency. It's not their job and their job title. They now have this network that no matter where they show up to provide their value at a company, they have a, a team of people that they have shared contacts with, they have work history with, and, and those people, you know, in a lot of cases are following them from project to project or company to company. And, and I think we'll start seeing a lot of the, you know, just like it's the consumerization of IT, bring your own device or bring your own iPhone to work. Uh, people will start bringing their own freelance network uh, to bear and, and help the companies uh, that they work for. Yeah. Well, I know if anyone is, uh, wants to be leveraging freelancers and virtual assistants and freelance, all these different types of people, maybe more than what they're doing now, or maybe they haven't really had much uh, practice. Can you talk a little bit about your, your TIDE model, T-I-D-E, uh, for leveraging them? Yeah, I think one of the things, and this goes to how radically different of a way this is working, I found myself finding and repeating myself when I was teaching people how to start working this way. And so it was, it's a framework to help people understand. The first is, you know, to taskify. You know, take a big problem and start with the work and then figure out all of the pieces that go into work, right? So this show alone has X amount of, of people that work in, whether it's social media or, you know, Paul Roberts, who's there giving hand signs and who's a radio guy or yourself doing the interview or the people doing the editing and the posting. You know, there's different tasks of, of every project. In this case, you know, producing a, an amazing podcast. The second is identify, you know, which expert is the right expert to put in place? I don't think you want me trying to live tweet anything because it would come out not so great, but but I think you want um, that to happen as well. How do you identify the right people? Then to delegate. You know, the hardest thing for, for people to do is to delegate tasks to other people, and that is a learned, uh, you know, through lived experience sort of uh, thing that you have to do. And then uh, evolve. How do you just take those learnings and uh, and continue to improve? Oh, did we lose Chris there? I, I don't hear him re retorting here, coming back, or maybe he's got his mic on there. I think we lost him for I think a second. It's, I think I think it's um, the challenges of broadband <laughs> during a pandemic. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? It doesn't seem to all work like it's supposed to here. Well, I appreciate I've, you I've, you coming I've on today and. I, yeah, produce, I always appreciate the call out to the producer because nobody ever. I'm the I'm the silent force behind the screen here. I'm the uh, Wizard of Oz here. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have a producer for a lot of the the events and shows we do, and it's it's a fun relationship. In fact, I I was very good friends. Um, I was on radio KLSU ninety one point one Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There you go. Um, and uh, my favorite producer, his name was Paul. So you. You didn't work down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I didn't. The last place I worked was in Norfolk, Virginia. I had to learn to say Norfolk real fast here. WMYK, <laughs> K94. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, get you uh, back again. Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you, and then we'll move on to the next guest here. There you go. If you'd like to get in touch with me, the best way to, to reach out is on LinkedIn. Um, just type in Paul Estes. I have a newsletter that goes out every Tuesday morning to over 95,000 people. If you are interested in learning uh, a little bit about the gig economy and how it can help not only you and your career, but uh, your company and organization. I encourage you to, to buy the best-selling book, Gig Mindset. And I, I thank Chris and you, Mr. Roberts, for, for the time today. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. 
Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk radio show. We uh, somehow survived the entire city where I'm at. The power went out and just came back on. So, you know, you roll with the punches sometimes. We're back on. I'm excited I really appreciate uh, Paul S. as being on the show and uh, thank our producer Paul for uh, wrapping up the show for me. Uh, and we will get that probably all edited nice and neat later on. But, uh, you know, the show must go on. So we're going to move forward. Uh, if you want to listen to the uh, podcast, we'll have that out in a few weeks. And of course, we'll post that on social wherever we're at. You can also go to talenttalkradio.com and subscribe to the show. Make sure that you get alerted anytime a new episode is out or if you have a uh, Apple, you can uh, subscribe on it through iTunes or iHeartRadio or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. You can subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. All right. My next guest is uh, Tara, not the HR lady. And I think her full name is Tara, Tara uh, Ferriani. Um, and uh, don't forget, we are live tweeting at, at peopleg 2 if you want to uh, follow us or follow the hashtag Talent Talk. But let's go ahead and bring uh, Tara into the show. Welcome to the show today. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and what you're all about so we know where to head with this conversation. Sounds great. Uh, my name is Tara. As you mentioned, I am the CEO of Not the HR Lady. My company is about all things people, no BS. So in addition to our popular show, which is also called uh, the same thing, Not the HR Lady, it's about to head into its second season. We work with executives and organizations all over the world to be more inclusive, more people forward. Um, we also have a series of master classes that are launching next Monday. And if we weren't busy enough, a book coming out called F Your Office Snacks and a second show called Killer Colleagues, both coming out next month. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Before I took on this venture, though, I was a chief people officer for the last 12 years and in this uh, people space for the last 20 so I've been around the block a little bit as the top HR leader for several organizations now um, all across the country. Uh, but I, I turned that hat in and started my own my own thing. So where does the not the HR lady, where does that come from? Is that just a yeah. desire not to be well, seen me... as the quintessential HR person or is there something more to it there? So there's a little bit more to it there. So uh, sure, that's definitely one way to look at it, not the quintessential HR person. But it's actually a little bit deeply, more deeply rooted than that. Uh, the number of times, unfortunately, uh, where I've been referred to as, this is the HR lady, um, as a C-level executive by my peer C-level executives is just kind of too many, right? So a leader for the people should maybe just get a little bit of the same respect uh, that somebody else in the C-suite would have. You wouldn't say, like, this is the new bean counter guy when you're introducing the chief, the chief financial officer, right? So uh, that's kind of where the name came from, and it's actually something I have been called more than one time in a professional setting. 
Uh, so if HR has been long considered a four-letter word, I would like to change that. Hence the name, not the HR lady. There's a little bit more to it, you know, than just uh, somebody who's checking boxes and making sure you get paid and get benefits, you know? Yeah, and I think that's been a, it was really a conversation we were having early on when I started this show five or six years ago. It was a lot about how does HR get a seat at the table? How are they, you know, at, at the C-level and, and being a part of those discussions and and how do they get, you know, the how do the right people be perceived in those right settings that are not generalists, right? There are generalists who do right. great work, who are, who are, you know, checking forms and making sure payroll is being done, and you know that you can get your benefits and things like that. But that's not what a CHRO does. That's not exactly. their main benefit or a head of people or whatever it may be. So, right. um, yeah. And, and to your point, I would never refer to the CFO as the bookkeeper. Um, I mean, right, exactly. You just wouldn't do it. So, uh, you know, it's something that's a pretty passionate topic of mine. And I like the tongue-in-cheek approach of it. You know, I sort of take a humor-based approach to uh, explaining things that, in my opinion, are pretty basic. But somewhere along the way, we kind of just lost our way with understanding that, you know, there's an H in HR that represents humans, you know. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's been a little bit lost in the woods, if you will. So sort of leading up to you being on the show today, I've just had a a few moments to be able to kind of, you know, see who you are through social and your presence and things like that. And and you are you are definitely not a a meek person. You're not someone who uh, holds, I think, their their tongue, uh, which I I certainly appreciate and admire um, and and are kind of saying it as it is. And so I I wanted to take that my perception of what I sort of saw of you and in a few quick snapshots. And merge that with the question of, you know, what what does leadership look like today? Is it is it being, is it having you know, radical candor like Kim Scott's book talked about? Is it is it about being blunt? Is it about being, you know, open and honest and really sort of taking it to that extreme? Or or is there more to it than that? I think leadership today is looks like a lot of confusion, frankly. Um, you know, it's a really interesting space to be in, and and I appreciate. Your thoughts. I am very candid and very, and very open. I would never describe me as meek, but that's not necessarily always been the case either. So when you're in a corporate environment, a lot of the times you sort of have to mind your P's and Q's. You can't call out things the way that I call them out now. And it's, it's a damn shame that you can't, frankly, because there's so many things that are just inherently wrong with a lot of the way we work. And that's, that's just the unfortunate part of how we've, over time, you know, just I think almost been a little bit brainwashed to like, this is how you act. And, you know, when you are, especially as a woman, um, you're taught to be agreeable, right? And friendly and not to cause a ruckus. And even when presenting ideas to your counterparts, even, you know, who happen most of the time to be males, um, you know, it's, it's not to be disruptive or not to be defensive or any of the other, you know, words that are used to describe us often. But I think, you know, to that point with leadership, it's like, isn't that what everybody's been doing, though? Like, that's a quintessential quality of a leader is to be a little bit disruptive, in my opinion. So the way it looks today kind of is disruption adjacent, meaning that, yeah, we've kind of seen that certain things just don't work this way and we need to change them and it's ebbed and flowed over time. But I think what COVID has shown us is that more than ever, we have to do things differently, look at it differently, again, remember the humans, um, and stop being so fearful about saying something 
wrong about, you know, questioning what we're doing, about calling out bad behavior, because that is just shouldn't be tolerated, you know, and so many times you see it swept under the rug, and that's an unfortunate thing to my earlier point. I haven't always had as much candor as I have now. As a chief people officer, I have swept my fair share of things under the rug, and I don't wish to do that anymore. I don't think we should have to be complicit. Companies shouldn't make you you know, kind of in the middle, especially in roles like we have. It's like, let's just do the right thing. Let's agree to do the right thing. So leadership today, I think, looks really confusing, a lot of fear, but a lot of openness, and I'm inspired by this, that people want to change, want to go back to, like, understanding what matters to humans. At least I've seen that by and large. I wish it was more, but by and large, I think that coming back to, like, the fact that people matter has been something that's really beautiful that's come out of this particular time. So I, I remember this was many years ago when my wife and I, before we were married, we coached basketball together. And uh, it was sort of a, a job that we had in college and, and some time after that. And uh, I could pretty much say almost anything to the officials. I could call them names. I could you know, rip them a new one for the call they made. And yeah. if she barked at them, she immediately got teed up. And yep. I found it really fascinating. And I would talk to them after the game. And it was usually like you had to have a real conversation. Why is it I could call you every name in the book and challenge everything? And the moment a woman challenged you, you teed them up. Right? You immediately felt like you had to puff yeah. your chest out and take control. And, you know, and they, they, it was subconscious to them. They had not even realized it. And, and if they were willing to talk to you to have a conversation, you could get some growth out of them. I feel yeah. like, and this is my perspective and a male perspective, that it feels like things have gotten better in the last five years in that people are not having an immediate negative reaction to a strong female presence and a strong female voice. But I'm wondering, are you seeing that? Do you think it's gotten better? And what else do we need to change? I think it's gotten better, but that's a really interesting kind of benchmark to, to what's better than what. I mean, right? Because, like, right. better is better, but it's definitely not near the kind of equal that it really kind of should be. Um, and, I, you know, that's a great story between you and your wife, and that's what I see more often than anything. You can push back as a male leader, and that's been my experience, watching male leaders push back, challenge, share their ideas, share their facts, share their why on what they're doing to represent the organization, let's say operations, the COO is talking. You know, then the CFO goes, also male, tells about, you know, his strategy and the different, you know, whatever they're trying to do. And then the woman comes up, let's say marketing, as an example, and she's sharing and she gets just blasted. Instead of like, and it's just as well thought out, right? So if all things are equal, same PowerPoint deck, same fill-in-the-blank style templates we've all done when asked to prepare a board packet for our areas, right? You get those kind of already laid out for you. This is the info we want. Zero questions for any of the male executives. Like, this is great. You know, da-da-da-da-da. You're having X. And then you get the woman leader. And a lot of times it's like, well, why would you want to do this? Why are you giving this person money? Why are you doing da-da-da-da-da? It's a lot more inquisitor, inquisitory as opposed to trust-based. And I, to your point, like, why, though? And a lot of times it is not necessarily something they realize they're doing. Um, but then I wonder, is that in and of itself just an excuse? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, there are probably things that we... I mean, I don't want to get into an entire, like, why does this exist, right? Because it isn't the right, same exactly. in other countries. <laughs> it's a larger topic to... 
solve for right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, you know, it is something that at least leaders need to be cognizant of, that okay. they need to be concerned and they need to be making sure that, and I and I, I, I will challenge people that I work with and CEOs that I coach or, talk or consult with, yep. that it's it's not just women who they need to make sure are, are being heard and they have the right uh, setting for them to, to be able to help the company the most they can, but also people who are introverted, people who, who will, you know, basically if you are an extrovert, if you'll stand up and yell and scream or be passionate or be willing to, to say a bunch of stupid things and then get pushed back and then say something else, like, like I have no, as an extrovert, I have no problem doing that. I can get up and say right. a bunch of things and then be like, oh, that was stupid. I should have said this. Okay. But if you're not that person, how do you as a leader we have really great people who are awesome at what they do. How do you provide the environment for them to be able to contribute, right? And then that's what I think is, mm-hmm. is, is, has been the focus. Well, I, I love that. And to sound as cliche as absolutely possible, it's like if you have a bunch of diamonds, right? The really shiny one grabs your attention, the one that's already been polished and everything. But the other ones are bigger. And when you shine them up, they're going to be better, like, you know, it's a totally cliche diamond sparkly analogy, but like it kind of rings true. There's still all a field of diamonds. It's just that only one of them is polished. So that's the loudest one, the one that's drawing the most attention. The other ones are just as good. You just have to approach it differently. And that's about you as a leader. So bringing out that introverted person who's brilliant, allowing or creating a space for everybody to contribute in a meaningful way and being genuine about it. Like, it starts with you. If you're not actually open as a leader to hearing what other people have to say because you think you know everything, um, which is the case a lot, unfortunately, even with some of the people I coach, uh, for that matter, which is a lot of the times getting out of your own way is some of your biggest challenges when you're in a leadership position. You think you're there because you've demonstrated expertise, and, and that's probably true, but that doesn't mean, and it's certainly actually should just begin a new part of your education about how to lead varying types of people, whether that's socioeconomically different people on your team, whether that's people of color, and maybe you've never managed people like that before. Maybe it's, you know, uh, strong women. I mean, it's whomever. Whomever makes up your beautiful team that you've got, your job is to continue to learn and grow to be able to provide a space for them to do exactly that too, right? The smartest leaders hire really smart people, smarter than them. And if they're confident, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but if, if you hire them knowing that, hey, you can get, you can draw something out of them, create that space, you know? You don't have to be someone who talks a mile a minute or is the loudest person in the room um, to, to get recognized, although it's hard, but that's more about you as the leader. You need to be the one to create spaces like that when you notice your team. That's about knowing, right? Knowing and trusting and understanding who they are to get the best out of them. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm sort of wondering, you know, uh, where you see real change happening. And, and, and the reason I ask this is I've, I'm, I'm really becoming this big proponent of it has to be systematic. That it's really my, is my, my personal opinion, things that I've observed over and over and over again, that it's really hard just to go to one person and say, change your behavior, magically do it differently, magic, right? And right. instead, if it's like there's a system in place, where particular behaviors are expected and 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 are good, and certain other behaviors are not tolerated. Uh, whether this we're talking about our community and how people might be discriminated against, if we're talking about our business where people might be 
you know, lifted up or recognized for particular things. Like, to me, it's all about the system. And that's what the leaders should be thinking about is how do you feed and, 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 and make that system as clear and as obvious and as, you know, and making sure you have the right people in there and you're getting rid of anyone who's sort of not following that system. Is that the right way to, to really enact real change? Or is there a missing component here? Is there something else we should be thinking about that you, you tend to think about? The thing that I'm thinking most about these days, I completely agree with you, for, for the record. I think that a systematized approach is great, as long as the systematized approach doesn't disproportionately exclude people of color or women, because right. that's what we've seen in the past, right? And that's, that's something that we really have to go, okay, but when we have a system, is that a fair one? Um, where I think I've seen a lot of people really, 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 really start to shift is kind of in the space of like, we've always done it this way. We've all, you know, the status quo has been X, but now people are calling, calling bad behavior out. People are asking tough questions during interviews. People are, you know, putting, uh, maybe lighting a fire, if you will, um, around companies, around leaders, around um, organizations and nonprofits and sometimes even, um, that says that we're not going to tolerate just kind of the way it was, the way it used to be, that we really need to see some serious change. We really need to see some real investment in. It's not just about shifting your own mindset and doing some training or, you know, creating, right. you know, groups and stuff like that. It's really more about creating a customized experience and opportunities for everybody while simultaneously demonstrating what your actual beliefs are and your your stance is on things that are important to your employees. Leaders have come a really long way and there's still a really long way to go, but I think the biggest factor, and, and I'll keep saying this forever, is that we have so much to do as employees and so much to do as leaders, but in both, in both courts, we have to start thinking and, and shifting our, our mindset, shifting our natural behaviors to be that more inclusive, to be that more cognizant and aware of, like, what's around you, what's going on, and then deciding not to tolerate when things are awry, when things are amiss. And I think the more that we do that, the more that we normalize talking about things that are hard and not tolerating microaggression and not continuing to keep and employ those people. Um, you saw that t- like today. I am so angry today about the settlement um, that the that Louisville has made to the family of Breonna Taylor. And the reason I am upset is not because they made a settlement. I think she deserves, her family, her estate deserves all the money in the world. However, I'm very concerned that there's still no arrest. There's still no termination. And I've seen that so many times in, in the world of work where we, instead of actually making effective change and doing the right thing, we pay off bad behavior and put out a press release. And I, I just really, I'm, I'm fired up about that topic today, but that directly ties in to exactly what I'm saying, is we have to start doing things intentionally, purposefully, and not tolerating people in our organization who make the workplace a bad right. one. And, and it's a, it's a good example behavior, of a bad system, right? right? Because yeah. what are you telling everyone else inside of that system? It may be uncomfortable right. and it may be bad, but ultimately you're not going to lose your job and you're not going to be held accountable yep. 
if you make a yep. really ter- this terrible mistake and someone else is just going to pay for it and sweep it on the rug for you. And, right. and we can, we can look at that from a, that's a, you know, a social issue that we're, our, you know, our entire country is dealing with, but you can, you can replicate that inside of work, right? So, yeah, and, and, absolutely. And some, somebody who's making, uh, who's sexually harassing people, who's never gets fired, but they continue to pay people off and, and just remove the, the victim, uh, I mean, there's yep. been so many examples over over time where bad behavior was allowed, and just, that person didn't ever have to change. And so, until they did, real change didn't happen. That's um, right. You know, until so there are real consequences, right? Financial, right. financial, couple of hundred thousand dollars is nothing. You know, twelve million dollars to the city of Louisville, Louisville is probably substantial, but they, I'm sure they have insurance that covers that. So. It's it's not enough because it doesn't hit them where it actually matters. You know, you're not losing your job. You just got the opportunity to harass somebody, and now we're paying them off, and you get to stay because you're this brilliant a hole, is what I call them. Right. Um, you tolerate the bad behavior because you think they're doing something for your company. I'd push back and say, how much have they cost you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in reputation yeah. alone, and that's invaluable. You know, we've kind of really d- kind of dove into a couple different areas here where I think there's certainly um, society or organizations or groups, you know, have, have, a, have a lot to work on. They have a lot of things that they need help with if they want to be a top workplace or top community or whatever that may be. But right. let's sort of reframe this and, and say, you know, what is it you're doing to help your clients? Where is it you're able to help them, you know, really put that focus into being their best and, you know, why do people typically come to you and, and, and to get, a, a, you know, a, a particular result? So I think that the majority of the people who I work with, and I'm really lucky because I get to work with some really great people who are really interested in doing good work and changing, changing their organizations because they've realized that they've been doing things wrong. Um, so I am really great at helping people find their voice, using it, and helping them to change the world of work. There are a lot of companies that are out there, and I, I say this in spite of all the other things I've said, uh, that there are people out there who want to change. That's what energizes me. When I see people see that light bulb go off that go, wow, cool. It, it, when you say just because it's always been this way doesn't mean it still has to. Like, that's not just some thing that you put up in your office somewhere. Like, this is real. You can actually decide to make meaningful change that's directly going to impact your business, but better, especially with a lot of the CEOs and executives I work with, makes them feel better as a human being because at some point the money doesn't matter as much as what you're doing for the world. And I've noticed that with like every single one of my CEO clients that they want to make a meaningful impact for their organization with their organization and ultimately through their people to enrich their lives. Like Dan Price is a great example with gravity payments, you know, taking basically no salary and doing a guarantee of, I think it's now $80,000 for even the most junior employee. And how did the employees thank him? They bought him a Tesla for Christmas out of their own money. And I, I just, that's how you create change. That's how you do something meaningful for your employees, and that's what I find with the executives I work with, is that they want to do exactly that. What can I do with and through my organization to better the world, to better the lives of the employees I have, and to better make them want to stay here and do the good work with us? That's becoming more and more, uh, you know, talked about and being part of something that's cool and in. 
And I'm really excited for that, and I'm really hoping it's going to stick. But I'm optimistic based on what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're able to to help your your clients uh, achieve some of those things. Uh, I think it's super important the work that you're doing, um, and um, you know, it it really often comes from the place in which we've been most inspired, and 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 the, the things that we're doing. And you sort of mentioned, uh, I, I forget the name of the company now that that CEO works for. I met him once before at uh, an Inc. event. Uh, Gravity. Yeah. Right, yeah, and um, you know, it's it people doing these different things that make sense for them that can really make a difference is is huge. Um, I want to make sure we ask you two quick questions before we go. We're almost out of time. Okay. Um, is there a book that you're reading these days, or one that you typically suggest people check out? Uh, so I actually have been encouraging everybody to get out of business books. Okay, we're twenty four seven on our computers. Most of us are stuck at home, living in a virtual world. We can't get away from work. So I would like to recommend a very brand new young author uh, with a horror book that is a small novella called The Bell Chime, and it's by Mona Cabani. It just came out. I am very lucky that her father happens to be my mentor, and uh, she just graduated from Columbia a couple of years ago, and this is her very first book, and it is fantastic, and it's called The Bell Chime. It is horror, and it is awesome, and uh, it's a really great short read if you're looking for just a little bit of a of an escape away from business books. As far as business books go, though, I would like to recommend for sure A Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. It is a great, empowering book about finding your your authentic self. Yeah, I love that book. And it uh, I actually did a whole year of, of saying yes because of her, and it was fantastic. So, oh, um, I love it. Oh, can, I'm in the middle of mine right now, so I'm, I'm yeah. pretty excited. Good. Well, how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in working with you? Absolutely. Uh, you can visit us at notthehrlady.com. That will link you to all of our social media, which is also just at notthehrlady.com. And you can certainly connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, same deal. LinkedIn, not the HR lady. Perfect. Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for everyone listening to today's show. Hopefully you've learned something you can use in your own career in a positive way. And hopefully, Tara, we can have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the cool things that you're doing. I would love it, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Until then, uh, or until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 